Okay. Good evening, everyone. So, um, I have a few remarks about practicing with discomfort to start off the evening. Then we'll do a guided meditation with that in mind. Um, and then I want to leave a little bit more time for uh, discussion and Q&A afterwards. So if you have any questions about practice that you'd like to ask, um, uh, please have them ready to go. I have a couple that I've received through email um, that I'll uh, address first, um, but I think there should be time for more. And if not, there are many evenings to come. So, um, so, you know, in a very sort of down to earth way, I think the experience of discomfort is one of the most common things that we have to work with when we sit, you know, um, just uh, how to respond to um, things that we just don't want to have be part of our experience of meditation. Simple things like physical discomfort, a mosquito lighting on our, on our some exposed skin, an itch, right? Or, um, or maybe it's, it's noise that's coming from outdoors or for the next room, right? Um, small things like those, though they sometimes don't feel so small, like, you know, when we're actually dealing with them in the moment, especially the mosquito, which can seem like really, really irritating. Um, but also bigger discomforts, like uh, emotions that might start welling up and we're not sure we want to feel thoughts. They may be um, bubbling up from somewhere deep down within us that we're not sure we really want to be thinking. Um, and these can become very, very intense, like um, huge griefs, um, fits of rage, um, bottomless feelings of loneliness. No. All things that I think we're familiar with, you know, from time to time. Last week, <clears throat> we talked about a verse from Ezra's uh, poem, What Is Her Life About?, that I think was really focused on those bigger things, right? The, um, like, uh, what do we do when we experience um, an emotion or something that we, um, we just don't want to open to? And last week, I encouraged us in this practice of actually ex really exploring the very things that we don't want to feel very deeply, you know, um, and really thinking of those as like big things that we don't want to feel. Um, but today, actually, I want to, I want to like dial things down a bit and just think about how we can see the ordinary everyday discomforts that we'll, um, we'll experience when meditating or just throughout the day as opportunities um, for practice, rather than as we, I think, are sometimes tempted to do, see them as distractions, which it would be nicer 
um, were they not present, right? So that we could really focus on our, on our meditation practice, really be able to follow the breath, you know, um, with more ease. And um, I think that's a very natural feeling, but actually the thing is those, those small moments of discomfort, pain, um, dis distraction in a way are actually like really incredible opportunities, which it would be a shame for us to let slip by um, and not to make use of. Because um, if we can work with minor discomfort, see them as opportunities, it actually lays the groundwork for being able to work with the much bigger things that I think we have trouble accepting, being with. They're actually very much on a continuum, even though like it may seem like a mosquito crawling on our skin and sort of like, you know, sort of feeding upon us might seem light years removed from the grief that can overwhelm us when we're um, dealing with the loss of someone we love. And of course, in certain ways, they are different. I'm not trying to say that they're the same, but in terms of how we react to them, you know, our just basic sense of, no, I don't want this. That dynamic is very similar. And working with things that we don't want to feel at small scales do help us deal with things that we don't want to feel that are much bigger, um, much more overwhelming. And so um, hopefully our lives you know, are not saturated with overwhelming difficulties, though I think almost all of us at different periods in our lives go through times when it feels like that's the case. But, um, but the, I think there is really no single day that we will go through that is not full of these small discomforts, right? And so, um, so they're every, all over the place. They're just ready for us to work with if we can just see them as the opportunities they are. Um, so uh, I, I wanna read the, the verse that I sent out in the email um, about tonight's class, just to, just to have it fresh in our minds. By the way, I, I don't know if any, everyone who's on this call gets that, that email every week, but in case you don't, you can subscribe to it um, by going to the website that's associated with this group. Um, it's called, uh, or the address is www.williamstownzengroup.org, williamstownzengroup.org. And if you go there, you'll find um, a link to subscribe to the email. I just send a reminder with a Zoom link and so, once in a while, not always, I'll say um, a little bit of what I think this week's class will be about. And tonight I shared a verse from a poem by my own Zen teacher, Ezra Beta, that <clears throat> this poem is just about practice in general. Like what is, what is practice, right? And, um, and the third verse goes like this. And what is the path? The path of practice to turn away from constantly seeking comfort and from trying to avoid pain, to open to the willingness to just be in this very moment, exactly as it is. No longer so ready to be caught in the relentlessly spitting mind. Practice is about awakening to the true self no one special to be, 
nowhere to go, just being. So, um, you know, practice is ultimately just about being, just sort of getting the hang of something that in some ways is the most natural thing for us, it's just to be. But we rarely feel like we can just be because we're constantly doing something. You know, if we're not busy in the world, um, you know, hectically going about our activities, then um, we're often inside ourselves, busy doing things, um, time traveling into the future, reminiscing, ruminating on the past, but also particularly, I think picking and choosing moment by moment, like how we want our inner experience to feel. And I think the most common thing we're doing is saying some version of, I don't wanna feel this. I don't wanna feel that. I'd rather feel that way, you know? Um, so some of you may not be familiar with Buddhist philosophy and it's, it's fine, there's no need to. I mean, um, if you come to enough of these classes, you'll pick up a decent amount just um, by osmosis. But one of the things that the Buddha realized upon his big enlightenment experience that really sort of got this thing that's called Buddhist practice, Buddhism going, is something called the Four Noble Truths. Um, four sort of elements of reality that he woke up to. And of course, um, the, the word, the name Buddha just means one who is awake. So actually it's, it's not a name, it's just that it's, it's a, it refers to him as someone who opened his eyes and saw something true about reality. Um, and so uh, the first noble truth is that life is characterized by what he called dukkha. It's often translated as suffering, um, but suffering is pretty heavy sounding. You know, I think it's um, maybe actually even more accurate to say, there's always gonna be something unsatisfactory about life, right? You're never gonna be, you know, well, not never, like it's, there's, there's always something that could be different, which you'll want to be different, you know? Um, someone actually, one Zen teacher said, life is, you know, often a bummer. You know, things don't often like work out the way we want. Um, and at the very least, um, and this is actually only for lucky, we're gonna experience old age, right? Sickness and death. Um, so, um, so, you know, as good as human life can be, it's always shadowed by this fact that nothing's permanent and what seems satisfying one moment can disappear. Um, and so there's, it's, it's, it's a kind of, um, haunting, right, of human existence by the possibility of things going awry. And of course they do, you know, they do. And then, but he went on and, and stated the second thing that he realized, the second noble truth that he saw, which is, is that the cause of dukkha, the cause of the suffering or unsatisfactoriness is tanha, which is sometimes translated as craving or desire or thirst. <clears throat> um, and it's basically just this deep inner human impulse he discerned in himself and realized was present in everyone he knew, it's just present in, in all humans, 
this deep impulse to want to hold on to things that we want to stay, to, to keep, like moments of pleasure, for example, um, moments of happiness, but also to feel aversion to things that we don't want to be present in our lives or experience. It's two sides of the same coin. They're both forms of attachment, both forms of craving or, or thirst. Attachment, wanting to hold on to things, or aversion, wanting to push things away. So when I'm talking about discomfort as an opportunity to practice, I'm really talking about going very, very deep into our own natures and seeing the role that tanha plays moment by moment. Picking and choosing whether I want this or I don't want this. Um, whether I want this to go away, to stay away. Um, and so when we work with an itch, a discomfort in our knee or our lower back, right? Or a boredom, right? Or just um, irritation or whatever it may be. We're not working with some sort of superficial distraction that's in the way of like getting into real practice right, getting to real meditation practice. We're actually working at the deepest levels with the very thing that the Buddha said is the source of human suffering, right? Um, this craving that we have to manage or control our experience, to want it to be certain ways, but not others. He said, finding a way to liberate ourselves from this Tanha, this craving, this thirst, is the secret to liberation in general, you know. Um, so what this means is that when you see a moment of discomfort arise in a meditation practice, in a period of meditation, when you see how you react to it, you're right there, right where the Buddha was. Like saying, okay, this is the source of everything that is driving me crazy. You know? And so it's amazing. It's an incredible opportunity, right? Um, it's just a different way of framing these little things that just pop up every single time we sit. You know, it's very, I think it's gonna be rare, right? That we have a sitting where some moment of discomfort doesn't emerge doesn't arise. And in most meditation periods, there can be many of them, right? So instead of like fighting them, saying, God, I just got, I wish this would go away so I can just follow the breath. You'd see them as like a gift, you know, an incredible opportunity and make them the focus, the subject of your meditation practice. How do you react when pain or discomfort, whether physical or psychological, arises. Notice the way that aversion sort of emerges. What does it feel like to not want a particular experience to be there? What do you do once you've sort of set yourself against a particular kind of experience? How do you try to make it go away? How do you distract yourself? Do you flee into thought? Um, do you try to, if you notice a physical tension, 
that's emerged? Do you in some way try to like do a psychological massage? We're trying to get it to relax in some way. Instead of sort of identifying with all those reactions, all those impulses, why not study them to get at the bottom, at the root of the role that discomfort and our aversion to discomfort plays in our lives? Seeing it rather than indulging in those reactions. And what that will mean is noticing the ways that you are like trying to push things away, maybe trying to hold on to other things, just always trying to like moment by moment change, control, manage how you feel. It's kind of crazy when you start really looking at it carefully and you start to realize that, you know, there's a lot of interactivity going on, trying to manage our inner lives. Um, and it's that very activity that gets in the way of us just being. It's so easy to think of, oh, just be as a state that we might achieve. Something in meditation is a thing that we need to do to be able to get there. But just being actually means just being. It's the opposite of doing. There is no way to do something to get there. The truth is that it's not somewhere else where we need to get to through meditation, but already present. It's the very fact that we keep doing this picking and choosing, you know, trying to get rid of this discomfort or hold on to that moment of pleasure that actually keeps us away from the experience of being. We are in our own way, we get in our own way by always being in some inner way active, managing our experience. So you can't make yourself stop because that's just trying to do something else, right? You can't just then decide, okay, I'm going to make myself stop doing that because that's just another form of activity. The only way out of this cycle is to just study with great rigor in great detail, the processes of activity that go on almost relentlessly inside of us. And over time, that awareness gives us a certain kind of space from those that picking and choosing and allows that picking and choosing to begin to settle down. And then we can settle into this experience of being that underlies all the doing that we're so often caught up in. So, um, so that's, this is, this is, it's a gateway. It's an incredible opportunity. Um, every single time we're uncomfortable, just to study what our mind is actually like and the role, the kind of incredibly outsized role that craving, desire, a tanha plays in that mind. It's what keeps it going. Um, and I think, you know, it's very easy, I think, especially coming from a Western sort of perspective to think that, um, you know, what the Buddha is recommending is a certain kind of um, uh, a self that is, is balanced, that's that point of view, that doesn't, that doesn't pick and choose. Like, you know, the idea is like, okay, you know, why don't you just purify yourself of these desires? You know, be a self that is pure of desire that doesn't pick and choose. But actually that's a really, um, understandable but deep misunderstanding, I think, of what his point about 
Tanha was. The point is not that, the problem is not that the self picks and chooses those things, right? But rather that this picking and choosing is the very thing that constructs this illusion of the ego in the first place. Every single time we engage in this picking and choosing, it constructs the sense that I am this person who is feeling a version of this. I am this person who's attached to that. Without the picking and choosing, the self isn't there. It's just experience. It's just awareness. So um, it's not about becoming a pure person. It's about realizing the role that craving plays in the constitution of our very sense of self. That's that's another way of thinking about this. And it's like, it's more philosophical, I think less useful for like on the cushion practice, but I just want to, you know, I think there's a lot of people who can listen to all this stuff and say, okay, so I have to become a person who doesn't pick and choose, you know, I have to be a, it's actually not that at all. It's not about becoming a pure person. Um, it's not about goodness. It's about just understanding the roots of our very sense that we have a self in the first place. But the only thing to do is just study that craving itself. Don't get caught up in the metaphysics. Don't, it's not, it's not, that's just another distraction, all these ideas. On the ground is actually very simple. When discomfort arises, notice how you react. That's all. That's all it is. Okay. So um, let's sit for a bit, okay? Um, and uh, with some of these thoughts in mind. <clears throat> so, um, Please just get in a comfortable position for a bit of meditation practice. I think the key thing is that your front side should be open so that your breath can move freely in and out of the body. And please just take a few deep, slow breaths, breathing in through the nose and out through your slightly open mouth. And when you breathe in, breathe in really fully and feel the back, the spine lengthen. If you're sitting upright, you might even imagine your head, your neck floating upwards. And when you breathe out, just let all the tension, shoulders, let it all just hang, supported by your upright spine. And then after the next deep exhalation, let your mouth come to a close and begin breathing in and out through your nose. And just feel the sensations of your breath as your breath moves in and out of the body. You might follow the breath in the nose or in the center of your chest or in your belly. It doesn't matter whichever feels most natural for you. Just feel the physical sensations of the breath, the belly, the chest, or the nose. 
And when thoughts or anything else pulls you away from the breath, just notice that your awareness has become distracted and bring your awareness gently back to the physical sensations of the breath. And let the breath come and go at its own pace. No need to manage the breath. Let the breath be short and uneven if that's how it wants to be. Let it be tight or open, long and deep. There's no right way to breathe. Just be aware of whatever the breath feels like as it breathes itself. And for these first couple minutes of the practice, just every time your mind is pulled away from the breath, just gently bring it right back to the breath. And feel how the sensations of the breath change throughout the course of each in-breath and out-breath. How the beginning of the in-breath feels different from the middle and the end. Let your awareness become granular, textured, be as intimate with the breath as you can. And now while you continue to follow the breath in this way, feeling the physical sensations of the breath, widen your awareness so that includes the sounds in the space around you. So part of your awareness is following the breath, but that you're also aware of all the sounds that you can hear around you. At first, it may be difficult to hold both sounds and breath and awareness simultaneously, in which case it's okay to gently, occasionally toggle back and forth. But once in a while, try to hold breath and sounds and awareness at once. And over time, with practice, it'll become easier and easier to do.
It is possible that during the course of this meditation period, some of you may not experience anything that is uncomfortable. And that is totally fine. Just enjoy it. Just continue following the breath and listening to sounds in this way. But for the rest of you, when you experience anything that feels uncomfortable, this could be physical, emotional, or mental, use that as an opportunity to study how the mind reacts. What thoughts arise when something you don't want to feel or think arises? Is there a physical sensation associated with aversive thoughts? How does the body react? to sensations or emotions that it finds uncomfortable. You're not trying to change your reactions, not at all. You're just using this opportunity to explore them, to study them with curiosity. And when the reactions soften, settle down, no longer seem that compelling, just return to the breath and to sounds. I would say don't stay with any sight of discomfort for too long, maybe a minute or so studying 
your reactions. But then after you studied for a little while, gotten a sense of how your reactions feel and sound, then return to the breath and to sounds environment. And then if that discomfort continues to call to you, especially with some urgency, then let your awareness move back towards it, explore a little bit more deeply. But then after a while, come back to the breath and to sound. So you don't stay fixated on one thing for too long. Let the awareness move around, not get hung up for too long. One especially powerful form of discomfort to practice with are the kinds that make you feel an urge to move your body. Sometimes we feel an itch that we just really want to scratch or a discomfort in a part of our body that we think would be quickly remedied if we just move, shift our posture a bit. Resist the first impulse to move and explore the impulse itself. Instead of letting impulse translate into action, study the impulse. Look at yourself as like a scientist studying how your mind is habituated to reacting in certain ways to discomfort. If the urge to move remains very strong, feel free to move the body in a way that will make it feel better. But try to move with as much awareness as possible. And then take note of whether or not moving the body in the way you did actually helped the discomfort go away. And if so, for how long?
Okay, that's good for this sitting. Feel free to move, make your body as comfortable as you like. I'd be curious to hear from anyone who'd be willing to share what the experience, oh wow, Sheila's cat, <laughs> um, what the experience of um, like, you know, exploring in this way, their reactions, discomfort, what it was like and what effect if any it had. Um, I found sometimes that it's, um, even though it's by definition uncomfortable, right? To be with um, uh, this kind of experience, there's something also um, a bit like a relief of not kind of frantically kind of squirming inside, trying to run away from this comfort. And there's something that just feels like, okay, this doesn't feel good, but it's better than constantly trying to like, in, in this inward way, trying to you know, get rid of this feeling and just be with it. Um, um, and, and over time, sometimes that softens not only the reactions, but also the discomfort itself. Um, but um, would anyone care to share how it was? And it could be just that it sucked, <laughs> it didn't feel good at all, or whatever, anything would be wonderful. Sylvia, do you have something, please? Yes, hi, hi, everybody. Hi, Sylvia. I find that a lot of the time I'm physically restless. Um, and so this has been a long, hard road for me not to move, not to feel too hot, not to feel crampy, not to feel sore back. All those things happen. And sometimes, and it's almost like despite everything, um, if I can just um, stay with it and Notice the pain, which I do. Notice the restlessness. Notice all those things like I'm getting hot. Um, all of a sudden, it just kind of goes away. That just goes away. And I don't even realize it's not there. I just have uh, a feeling of, uh, it's like a smooth line mm -hmm. going in front of me. And there's that, that kind of um, discomfort. It's not, it's nothing is like really acute. It's just a, a restlessness. And if I can just like go through, it's like going through a certain choppy water or something. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the other side and all of a sudden it's smooth. And then you just ask yourself, why was it so hard to get here? It's, so it's kind of like, um, like, like, uh, uh, I don't want to say magic, but you don't know how it happened. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a wonderful description, Sylvia. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. But how did you, Sylvia, how did you, how did you get out of that moment of feeling hot or discomfort? Was it the breathing or it just passed or, I mean, and if you don't do anything to alleviate uh, pain or discomfort or wanting, 
who is the self? <laughs> I think the breathing absolutely for me helps a huge amount. And also just uh, having so many times when it doesn't work, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's working. That's wonderful. Does <laughs> 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 anyone else have something they'd like to share about this particular experience or practice? Shannon, please. Thank yeah, you. Um, earlier when you were talking about suffering for a long time, you know, I thought I looked at Dukkha as a direct, you know, translation to that. And then um, it was reframed for me to, to do what you were talking about. And, and the, the term was um, duking it out, which I thought was, I thought you would think was funny. So I wanted to say that earlier. But um, I remember the first time I sat and was told that I wasn't, I was just told because from, you know, from the Tibetan tradition to not move. Right. And I just wanted to tear my face off, you know, and I, I, I didn't have any anybody talking me through it or or telling me to, to consider focusing on the breath or allowing me to say that it's OK to contemplate and think about things other than wanting to tear my face off. Um, and so it became really horrible. Thank you for sort of giving us the reminder to give ourselves permission to, to be really uncomfortable because um, it's taken me a long time to be able to sit and focus on the breath like Sylvia or um, sounds I'm starting to be able to do, but that's after a long time of really, really fighting it. And also just being told straight up, don't do it. Don't touch yourself. Don't move. Mm -hmm. And not having, um, you know, the tools really to be able to say like, no, it's okay. You can give yeah. yourself, you know, a break on this one. But I, so I've, I've been duking it out for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I think it is okay to move. Um, I think it's just about then like not maybe moving at the first impulse, right? So you can like see it as like something you can learn something from, but then not pushing it too hard. I think that's that that's counterproductive. A little bit also, it can, it can also um, encourage like kind of macho attitudes and rigid attitudes towards practice, which are definitely also counterproductive. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, but it's, it's interesting, like, you know, what Sylvia was talking about, um, what, what, one of the things we start to sense is that actually our resistance to discomfort is actually so much of what the suffering is actually about. And when you stop fighting it so much, something can just dissolve. And it's, um, and like you said, Sylvia, it's not exactly something you made happen. And yet, of course, you're being with it in the way you were. I'll gave the space for that to happen. I think that's maybe the best way to put it, you know. Um, actually, this, um, this gives me an opportunity to segue to one of the email questions that I got, which is um, someone's like, what does it mean to work with an emotion or a sensation or something, you know? And, um, and I think this is actually just a really um, nice moment to say that it's not it, working with is an interesting phrase. It does make it sound like you're doing something very active. And yet I think actually what Sylvia was talking about is what we mean by practicing with or working with something, just learning how to be with, just being with, not even like just being with something as best as we can. Um, just like feeling the sensations, like noticing the thoughts. Um, and there's nothing active that we're supposed to be doing 
it's just being with them. And then that gives, I think, um, rise to the possibility of something shifting. You know, um, I think with minor discomforts, it may happen relatively easily. With bigger, deeper emotional discomforts, probably will take a little bit longer and sometimes in some cases a very long time of sort of working what they're being with those those kinds of uh, mental states before a shift will happen but one never knows because the truth is that anything can happen at any moment you know um this is not a linear path i think we need to be careful of not importing our ideas of like you know working out and you know every single time every week i'll get be able to do five more pounds it's not linear like that at all you know it could be that you experienced a complete you know, dissolution of deep emotional pain next week, you know, or this sitting, you know, or it could be that it's something that you have to sit with for months or years, you know, depending on what it is. Um, and of course it won't be constant. I don't make it sound, you know, it's like, but it will be there over long periods of time. And one just needs to learn how to be with, and so much of what one is doing is actually um, learning how not to duke it out. Right, actually learning how not to fight. Um, you know, a, a certain kind of anxiety, can we feel it without actually then also aggravating it with our own aggression towards it? Like this is not like, why just go away, you know? Um, and that can take a long time to come to terms with that inner state where you feel like, okay, I can actually just be with you. I can say hello to you and let you be there. And then magically, when you feel truly ready, say that it might actually like dissolve, but it's because you weren't ready till that moment to actually accept it, you know, um, let it be there. Um, is there, is there, does anyone have a, a, a question they'd like to ask now? Cause there's one other one from email that I wanted to um, touch on, but I'm, I'm also happy to prioritize questions that are just from people here right now. Okay. Um, let me let me spend a few minutes with this very good question, which actually I think a, a lot of people probably can relate to. I'm going to get it on my phone. It's a sh short email. Um, so a, a few weeks ago, someone sent this in. Following the, this week's sit, a question has been percolating. I've noticed that meditation has allowed me to open to what is and embrace and be okay with who I truly am both on and off the mat. At the same time, I've witnessed a few longtime friends and family members challenging me, saying things like, are you okay? What's going on with you? This isn't you. While I mostly believe I am embracing my true self through this work, there are moments that their pause leads me to question whether that is the case. That's a long preamble to what I believe my question is. How would you suggest that we address those who seek to tell us who we are and or presume that they know us better than we know ourselves? So I think this is um, something that a lot of people who engage deeply in spiritual practice can encounter. Um, you know, um, even from like a spouse, right? You know, if you, a partner, if you, if you connected with that person before you ever introduce the practice and then suddenly you can become very deeply engaged with practice that person may start to feel like you're changing growing distant in a way that um it's, it's like it's disturbing to them or, or or worrying to them like what's going on with you 
uh, it may be that certain reactions used to have um, to certain kinds of events or people, maybe you don't indulge in them so quickly and they start to feel like you're just, your personality is changing. You're not, you're not so easy to, you know, to, to um, pop off at somebody, you know, or, or say this kind of snarky joke that you realize maybe you're not so interested in saying anymore, right? Or, or maybe you, you were able to relax and before you were always like, you know, anxious and driven all the time. Like, what's, you know, what's going on with you, you know? Um, or other things that are less, more subtle than that. And people may just also have skepticism about practice in general. I just feel like you're, you're joining a cult or something like, you know? Um, and, um, and so, I think the the moment I want to start with um, is I think this last oh sorry hold on a second this um, the last question right how would you suggest that we address those who seek to tell us who we are and or presume that they know us better than we know ourselves now I actually think that there is um, a place and a time to address other people right and um, and uh, I think it could be particularly important when in the context of a very close intimate relationship where perhaps you need to talk it out, you know, and, and say like this, I'm, I'm doing this, it matters to me. And I would love it if you would just respect, you know, or even support what I'm doing, all that. But I actually think um, the first piece of practice advice that I would give to a person asking this question is that the key is not what to say to the other person, but actually how to work with the reactions that one's having in oneself, right, to what these other people are saying. Um, I think the first order of business, so again, it's not to say that at some point it may not be important to say something to another person, but actually if you, especially if you do want to say someone something to another person, you first need to become clear on what's actually going on with you, right? And so like, so what are those reactions? Why is it bothering you um, in the way it is? Because it's not obvious that it has to bother you, right? Someone could say these things and it could just like, you know, like you could just brush them off, but it's normal for it to bother people. I think a lot of us would be potentially disturbed because I think it would trigger certain kinds of feelings and thoughts in us about whether, I mean, it could be run the gamut. Does this person, you know, um, uh, can this person not really see who I am or um, uh, just a feeling of, um, a lack of recognition or a kind of distance or judgment or self-doubt or um, that's going definitely with this person asking this question, that's where other people's perceptions of him, him or her are starting to make this person question their own internal responses. And so I think the, um, the real key is first becoming clear on all the kinds of beliefs that are being sort of set off by the responses of people around us. Um, what kind of emotions are being set off? How do they feel in the body? And then the practice becomes just what we were doing tonight, right? Just exploring in some, with as much detail as possible, the thoughts and the sensations that are associated with these kinds of reactions. So that we can sort of start to understand um, whether or not there actually is any need for us to say anything, you know, whether it's just our own anxieties that would want to sort of like, you know, push back and, and tell people to, to like leave us alone, whether that's even necessary. And it may be, 
But I think rather than jumping to that, like, what do I say to the other person? Instead, first direct the gaze inward at oneself. And it might also then be easier to see whether or not the other people's responses are perhaps being set up by their own kinds of emotional reactions. Perhaps they're worried that they're, they're, the relationship is changing, you know, that they're, they're losing some kind of connection they had with you. Perhaps a, a, it's coming out of a fear, right, um, in them. And once you can see that, then a different kind of response, right? Rather, a not a defensive response, but actually perhaps even a compassionate one, one that actually you know, understands that actually that person is judging me from a place of fear and anxiety. And so why risk deepening that by getting defensive, right? And instead find a different way, a more skillful way to address it, you know? Um, so in any case, um, it's a sort of general, unnecessarily general kind of response with the level of detail I have, since I don't know all the, the people involved in the backstory. But I think the most important thing is the practice advice of, you know, often when we think something needs to be said to someone else, actually the first order of business is, what's going on with me, you know? Um, and then with some clarity on that, of course, we can't always have perfect clarity, but with some clarity on that, we can start to have a better sense of what would actually be a response that would help, you know, and not make things worse. Um, and the last thing I'll say to this is, this is, I think, one of the reasons why a practice community of some kind can be so important. Because let's face it, you know, though I think, you know, anyone can benefit from, from this practice, and it'd be so nice if a lot of people did it, it's actually not that common that people take up this practice in a serious way. And it can feel a little bit isolating, you know, to, to, to do this when your friends and your family don't really get it. You know, they may even be sympathetic, but yes, just don't quite get it, right? And I think it's really important, therefore, to have communities like this one, where you feel like, you know, there are other like-minded like, um, people who, who do get it, because it's, um, it's hard enough even when you're in community to do some of the work that we're doing, because it gets, it goes against some of the deepest forms of like human nature, you know, um, you know, when the Buddha talked about craving, right, this is a very, very deep thing in humans. And it is the most natural thing for humans to want to be comfortable <laughs> it is really unnatural and unusual for us to be like leaning into discomfort, like this practice asks us to do. And yet it's like the way, Right, it is the way. Um, okay, so that's what I have for those two email questions. And Sylvia, thank you so much for sharing your response. It was wonderful to hear from you as ever. Um, could we sit for one minute before we say goodnight so we can end with silence? Okay, wonderful. I'll tell you all when it's over.
All right. Thank you, everyone. Good to see you all.